0: Today's reading will be out of Luke chapter 22, verse 66 through 23-25. And I'll give you all a chance to turn there and stand once you do. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people, And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be to God. Well, as uh, we continue in our study of the gospel of Luke, um, we come now to the climactic uh, trial scene or series of scenes where Jesus is finally put on trial, uh, officially uh, examined by uh, both the Jewish High Council, Pilate, Herod, and then Pilate again. And we see ultimately that in this case, the case of this trial, uh, the facts don't matter all that much when it comes to putting Jesus to death. The facts don't matter all that much, but the facts do matter all that much to Luke that you would know that in Jesus's trial, the facts didn't matter. So that's a long way of saying (laughs) Luke is concerned for you to know that Jesus, in the case of his trial, was was crucified under false pretenses uh, in spite of the findings of the case. Uh, So Luke is very factually oriented. He wants you to know why Jesus was crucified. And dealing in facts is, is is very important for Christian belief. In fact, Christians have always believed that our faith is not simply theological ways to cope with suffering and decay and pain all around us, our our faith is founded on what we would say are historical facts. Facts about reality, facts about the world as it really is. And therefore, we believe things that are factually necessary to believe. For instance, uh, the Christian view of the world as it is, is that the world is created by God initially as good and then later is created, uh, fallen by the acts of mankind, by the acts of Adam and Eve, our, uh, our parents. Uh, that's, a, that's a thing that Christians would say, that factually is describing the world around us, so that when people today come around and say, oh, we think the world is essentially good, there's no real twisted corruption to it, we would say, we disagree with you, not my opinion versus your opinion, but facts about reality, as opposed to your take on what you see about reality. The, the Christian belief is not faith in, in the absence of reason. I've mentioned this before. It's, it's faith uh, carried out as the momentum, the, the necessary conclusion of other details which are settled in the historical narrative. And there's few factual details that are as clear in the history books about Jesus. Uh, one, that he really existed. And then the other, the other detail, very clear, is that he was really killed. He really was crucified. So now, we have to ask the question, which major belief today can accurately account for at least just those two details, that he existed and that he was killed? There are other facts that Luke is going to bring to light to color in the story, but I would would submit to you that the, the Jesus that is conceived of in popular culture, the one who is kind, affirming, down for whatever, that Jesus, does not really match the whole he existed and was crucified. Because the, the, the person who's kind and goes with the flow and is down for popular opinion, well, that's Pilate. And, and Pilate's not killed. He, in fact, he's surviving very well at, a, at an authoritative position in the Roman system. Uh, Jesus is killed because he insists, actually, that he's not uh, this kind, gentle person. He's actually insisting that he's king of the world, that he's the very Messiah of God. So we have to ask the question, who can rightly account for at least these two details, that Jesus existed and that he was killed. And so Luke, as I said, is concerned with the facts, even though in the trial, no one is concerned with facts. Um, And what Luke is going to factually teach us is that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus was in fact innocent of all charges, and that Jesus was the substitute for sinners. Those are the things that we're going to see in the text tonight. Jesus was the Messiah, that he was an innocent Messiah, and that as an innocent Messiah, he substitutes for clearly guilty people. That's what he's teaching us in the text tonight. Um, speaking of facts, uh, there's something that I do that drives Tara, my wife, crazy when I do it. Um, and some of you might be able to sympathize with me in this for, for just a moment. Um, we have lived in Indy for about four years now, and because of that, if we go to places on a regular basis, like uh, various restaurants or places where we visit all the time, Costco on the north side, whatever, um, I never, when I get in the car and start driving, never pull out a GPS, never worry about really what is the hard factual direction of where we're going, because I know you know, where these locations are. I've lived in the city for long enough, and sometimes you know, I miss a turn here and I get, back to the other way. And, you know, it might take me five minutes longer to get a place or 20 minutes longer to get somewhere. (laughs) But I always eventually make it there. And this drives my wife crazy, especially when she's in the car with me, uh, because, you know, I'll miss a turn. And then we'll be driving for a little bit. And she'll say, you don't want to turn there. And and I'll keep driving. And I'll miss another turn. And she'll say, do you know where you're supposed to turn? I say, "I, I couldn't name to you the streets that we're supposed to turn on but I know what it feels like you know, roughly when I'm there. <laughs> I know what the visual picture in front of me is, you know, what, what it kind of looks like around that area, and I'll know to turn in that rough direction. And this drives my wife crazy um, because I'm not going based on the, the most efficient way to get somewhere. I'm not following, let's say, the factual way to, to go to any location. I'm just going based on how I feel is the best way to go based on my intuition and my senses and my own kind of uh, just general feelings about how do I get places. And I think I think that one of the reasons that so many people today get Jesus wrong about who he really is is they, their approach to Jesus is like my approach to driving places. Is We go based on, you know, I know roughly about religion. I know roughly about church. I know I've heard people talk about Jesus. I have my own moral intuition. And so how do I arrive at an understanding of who Jesus is? I'm going to go based on my sense of what he's like. I couldn't name to you details about him or specific claims that he makes about himself. I just, I know what he feels like when I see him. You know, I know what it, but the the problem with that obviously is that if you talk to six people who have that take on Jesus, you'll have six different takes on who Jesus is and what he's okay with and what he's not okay with, what he's pro and what he's against, all of these kinds of things. What Luke lays out for us is a GPS navigated way to know really who Jesus is. No no getting lost in the weeds, no taking wrong turns. He's making a case for who Jesus is, and he's showing us an efficient way to get to that information. Uh, we would say, in, in the case of me not following the GPS, the risk is I might not get to a location, or I might get there a little slower than I really wanted to. I might find a faster way, you know, who knows? Um, <laughs> but uh, if, if we don't follow Luke's guide to knowing who Jesus is, This is not not getting to the right Jesus via a different means. This is the difference between having Jesus and not having Jesus. Uh, Whether we trust the Bible's account of who Jesus is or not, it's it's the difference between having the right understanding of who Jesus is and having the wrong understanding of who Jesus is. So whether or not you believe Luke's account, you have to at least say, well, here is someone who lived close to the events, wrote a historical document about the events, and at least claims to know what he was talking about, and a lot of people who lived around that time also believed that he knew what he was talking about. So you at least have to say, well, even if I don't agree with his account, I need to at least deal with his account of how things went down. So Luke's account of how things went down, at least in the trial, is found in, in these verses from chapter 22, verse 66, all the way through chapter 23, verse 25, and we're going to follow it in all of its major sections. The first section is found in verse 66, where we find Jesus before the council. Jesus before the people who have been trying to get him killed essentially since chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke. And chapter 5 and chapter 6, Jesus has a run-in with a couple of the leaders. And ever since that day, Jesus has been a thorn in the side of the Jewish religious leaders. And here finally, after the betrayal and a night of interrogation, they bring him officially... Now, note that officially before the people. But make no mistake, they already have their minds made up about the the punishment and the verdict, right? It tells us earlier in Luke's gospel that they set about that day seeking a way to kill him. John tells us the same thing. When Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead, they sought a way to put him to death. So they're not worried about the facts. They're worried about getting Jesus to death. That's what they're concerned to do. And so... Uh, here comes the trial. Uh, the day came, the day after that whole night, the night that we d- discussed last week. The day comes, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes. So you have official Levitical priests there. You also have what we would call the, let's say, theologically trained class, the scribes, the ones who interpret these scriptures. And they come uh, to form the, this Jewish council. And here's the question that Luke records for us. If you are the Christ, tell us. That's in verse 67. And here Jesus gives a a startling response. You'd you'd think if Jesus was ever going to claim to be God, here would be the place when he's on trial that he should claim to be God. He should say in response, Yes, I am the Christ. You've caught me. This is who I am. (laughs) However, as you'll see very clearly, Jesus' response is not a denial of their claim. It's not even a, a... grumpy i'll deal with that description of me of their claim he's he's simply saying how many times i have to tell you the same information over and over and over again he jesus responds to them to this question if you are the christ tell us he says if i tell you you will not believe and if i ask you you will not answer now what he's saying there is if I am the Christ, if I, if I tell you that, you wouldn't believe me. He's drawing on the parts in Luke's gospel where he says things like, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. If I am the Christ, I could forgive sins. And if I can forgive sins, I could tell this person to walk and they would walk. And he does those things, they don't believe him. And then he goes on and on and on, doing miracles, claiming to do these things. And he does that with a complete affirmation of all these wondrous signs. Never once did they think maybe he is the Christ. So he's saying... Actually, I've told you plenty of times, and Luke's recorded for us plenty of times, he said, basically, I am the Christ, I am the Son of Man, I am the Messiah. And the most recent one should come to memory when he talks about, uh, when he's in the triumphal entry. In, in, uh, he comes in receiving praise and worship from the people, saying, Hosanna to the King of Kings. And, he, and they say, tell them to stop worshiping you. And he says, no, this is fitting. So he's told them a bunch of different ways that he is the Christ. So he says, if I tell you, you would not believe. That draws on all of Luke's gospel where he has told them and they haven't believed. And then he says, and if I ask you, you will not answer. Meaning, if I ask you the question, well, who do you think I am? You won't answer the question. Now, that's an illusion, a snarky illusion, to when they come to him and they ask him about, uh, about, like, by what power does he do these things? And he asks them, well, where do you think John the Baptist gets his... uh, his authority from? Do you think his baptism is from heaven or from man? And you remember, this comes in uh, Luke chapter 20. Uh, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but if you want it for your, to look back later, Luke chapter 20, verse six uh, and following, he asked them, where do you say John the Baptist's baptism is from? And they say, uh, they discussed it among themselves. This is verse five. They discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say for a man, all the people will stone us to death, for they were convinced that John was a prophet. So Jesus asked them a question about John the Baptist, and they say, and they, and they answered that they did not know where it came from. So Jesus is saying, in the case of his trial before these same people, well, you ask me who I am. I've already told you, and I'm not going to tell you again. And then he says, and if I asked you, what do you think about me? You wouldn't answer me either, because I've asked you before plainly obvious things, and you said, we don't know, or we don't want to, Give you a verdict. And then Jesus goes on to say that he is in fact the Christ. Because in the very next sentence, he says, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, uh, if you're a Western Christian, you might say, I wish there were somewhere where Jesus said, in these exact words, I am God. I wish he would have said that just anywhere. Um, You know, there's all these John statements in John's gospel where he says, I am the, I am, where he he just makes that claim. Uh, He says, I am the light of the world. Uh, I am the the vine. My father is the vine dresser. You know, he makes all these claims relating himself to God the Father. Um, Why didn't Jesus just come out anywhere and say, I am God? Well, if you were sensitive to the first century setting of the gospels where they're written, you literally cannot get closer to saying I am God than saying I am the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. That is a direct allusion to three different messianic expectations in the Old Testament. The first one is Daniel chapter 7, which was read at the beginning of our service today, where there's this vision of all the kingdoms of the world rebelling against God, and it kind of follows redemptive history, And then in Daniel chapter 7, the vision of the son of man is the one who comes to the ancient of days and receives the everlasting kingdom that puts all other kingdoms to rest. And that's where the language son of man comes from. And Jesus, remember, has called himself several times the son of man. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. When he's being betrayed, he says the son of man is now betrayed into the hands of men. So he's using that title of himself. And now he even says the son of man seated at the right hand of power. So he's You can't really get much closer to quoting exactly from Daniel chapter 7 than that. And the dominant interpretation is this Son of Man figure is the Messiah figure and it's very hard to separate how they are distinct from the Father God because because of how overlapping they are. They receive worship and adoration and a kingdom and power. So here he says, in no uncertain terms, I am God. That's just one of the allusions, Daniel chapter 7. There's two others, one from Psalm chapter 2 and the other one from Psalm chapter 110. The Psalm chapter 2 one is a little more uh, oblique, a little bit harder to see. But in Psalm chapter 2, the drama is all of the kings of the world conspire against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us so that we can finally be free. And he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision and the son of man reigns or the the Son of God in this case reigns, the Lord's anointed reigns over the kings of the earth. And here Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the one who's going to be reigning at the right hand of the power of God over the rulers of the earth, right? He's saying from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. So he's saying Psalm 2, by the way, that applies to me. And then Psalm 110 is the third one. This one's uh, very easy to see because in Psalm 110, it starts off with, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool underneath you. So Jesus is saying, from now on, meaning until my enemies are made a footstool, the Son of Man will be seated at the, and here's the quote from Psalm 110, at the right hand of the power of God, which is where that Messianic figure is put in Psalm 110, at the right hand of the Lord to reign. And so in three different ways from three, Testament, three different Old Testament allusions, And to a first century hearer in no uncertain terms, Jesus says, I am God. And Luke wants you to know that he's saying that. And Luke wants you to know so much that he even shows you that the scribes and the Pharisees agree with Jesus, at least in terms of what he claims. Because look at verse 70. So they all said, are you the son of God then? So if he's saying, I am the son of man seated at the right hand of power, they're like, hold on. We're putting this together, so you're saying you are the Son of God. And he said to them, you say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So remember I said, historically, we have to reconcile the fact that Jesus existed and he was crucified. What Luke is telling you is the way you put those two details together is that he existed and claimed to be the Son of God, and for this reason, he was crucified. There are other major world religions which will later come around, hundreds of years after Christianity, and say, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. That was actually uh, something that his disciples after him invented about him. But the problem is, how do you account for the fact that he was crucified in light of these claims? Because the the only reason the text gives us in Luke's gospel for his crucifixion is that the scribes believe that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. And Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. And Luke wants you to know that. The scribes believe that. They're all on the same page about what's at least being stated. Although the scribes don't think that that's true. That's why they're charging him with what, what other gospels will tell us is a charge of blasphemy, um, and what they'll go before Pilate and say is he claims to be the king of the Jews, which is what the Messianic figure does in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. So at least the scribes believe Jesus, that at least Jesus claimed this about himself historically. And it's the best evidence we have about why Jesus was killed. If Jesus was a peace-loving philosopher who didn't, didn't uh, make anyone have a hard time, there'd be no reason for him to be killed but because he is claiming exclusive things about himself is the only reason for why he was actually put to death. So that takes us to the first scene, and we have the council and their vindictive desire to crucify Jesus. And uh, in the words of one commentator, Jesus demonstrates his control over this situation how? Here's the quote. He chooses to go to the cross by his own words. They don't have any evidence against him. They don't have witnesses against him. In fact, the other Gospels will tell us they try to get witnesses, but the witnesses aren't even on the same page about what they're accusing Jesus about. How does Jesus ultimately go to the cross? By a self-indictment. He says, in the presence of all these witnesses, you say that I am, from now on you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He, by his own authority, goes to the cross. By his own testimony. So there's the council scene. Now we take to... Uh, Pilate Part One, where uh, we meet Pilate, uh, possibly the most uh, American politician leader in the first century you have ever met. <laughs> um, because Pilate does not care about anything related to justice on the ground. He just cares about making sure people will still vote for him in the next cycle of common uh, correspondence. He doesn't want to upset the Jews. He doesn't want to upset the Romans. He just wants to get on with his life and keep his position. Of power. And so here's Pilate, and uh, the whole company arose and brought him, brought Jesus before Pilate. Verse 2 of chapter 23, they begin to accuse him in front of Pilate, and notice they translate uh, what Jesus said into Gentile understandable terminology. We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, and they translate that, a king. So Just so you know, the Jews believed that the Messiah was going to be not just a spiritual mentor to the people, but also the physical reigning king over all the world. So let's take these charges in in turn. The first one, he was misleading our nation. Well, Pilate does not care if the Sanhedrin doesn't have a grip on their nation's religious musings. Pilate lives in a system where you can worship whatever god you want or goddess you want on whatever whatever local custom you're, you're down with. So he doesn't care if you think someone else is misleading you. So he doesn't really care about that. And the only reason they level this charge against Jesus is not because it's a criminal offensive charge. They just want to say, we disagree with this guy's claims about himself. So he is misleading our nation. Actually, the, ir- the irony is they're the ones misleading the nation. So they say he's misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Now, Pause for a second and think. Where in Luke's Gospel did Jesus tell us anything, or did, did Luke tell us anything about what Jesus says about uh, giving tribute to Caesar? Okay, Think about that. You don't need to know the chapter or verse. Just think about that scene, what happens. If you're drawing a blank, that's okay. We're going to look there in a second. So settle the facts in your mind. It's not that many chapters ago. All right, let's go look uh, at Luke's Gospel in chapter 20. And verse 19, now, remember the scribes say he's misleading our nation and he forbids us to pay taxes to Caesar. Okay. Luke already told us what Jesus said. Luke chapter 20, uh, starting in verse, uh, uh, I'll start in verse 21. So they sent spies to him and they asked him, these spies, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and you show no partiality, but you truly teach the way of God is it lawful for us to give tribute to caesar or not so there's the question is it lawful for us to give tribute to caesar or not but jesus he perceived their craftiness and said to them show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have and they said caesar's and he said to them then render to caesar the things that are caesar's and to god the things that are god's so what the, what the scribes uh, and the Pharisees have done is they have blatantly lied about the words of Jesus. So we know, and Luke's telling us they're not concerned with the facts. They just want him crucified. They will say whatever it takes to get him crucified. So Luke already told us, in chapter 20, that Jesus actually tells them, when given the opportunity, ask that question, he says, "No. pay tribute to Caesar." And here they bring him before Pilate, and they say, "He forbids us from bringing tribute to Caesar. And he himself says he is Christ, a king. Now, Jesus did, in fact, say that latter part. He, he, in fact, has just said it in the previous verses. And so Pilate wants clarity. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Same response he gives to the religious leaders. And Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, the crowds, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching them throughout all Judea and from Galilee, even to this place. So they don't come back to Pilate and say, we, we question your verdict. They basically say, did you not hear the first part about what we said? He, he's misleading the people. He's been doing it from Judea to Galilee. And uh, the, the point that Luke is getting at, and you're going to see this a couple times repeated in chapter 23, um, even just three times in, our, uh, in the verses we have before us tonight, Jesus is not guilty. So the first thing I wanted you to see is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's said that in his own words, and now the chief priests have even accused him of that before Pilate, translating that into Gentile terms. He claims to be king. So clearly Jesus claimed that about himself. Now the second part that Luke wants us to see is that he's innocent of these charges leveled against him. The first one I already showed you, he does not ever tell them not to pay tribute to Caesar. Innocent. Is he misleading the nation? Well, Luke certainly made a compelling case that he's the true teacher and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the elders, they are the false ones who are misleading the nation. And here the claim that he is a Christ, well, he is innocent also of that claim as Luke will go on to show us. But even Pilate is a witness in Luke's account to say Jesus is innocent or as Pilate says three different times, not guilty. In verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. In verse uh, 14, he sa- he's, he's talking to the people and he says, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And then in verse uh, 22, for a third time, he says to them, I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Three times, Pilate says, innocent, innocent, innocent. And each time Pilate renders a verdict, they challenge his verdict because as Luke wants you to know, They are not concerned with justice. They are just concerned with crucifying Jesus. So what Pilate does is he figures out, well, Jesus is from Galilee. That's the last little bit that is said there. He comes from throughout all Judea, even from Galilee. And verse 6 tells us when Pilate heard this, heard he was from Galilee, he asked whether he was a Galilean. And when he had learned that he actually belongs to Herod's jurisdiction, here comes Pilate, the politician does not want to be on anyone's bad side. He says, oh, send him to Herod. Let Herod deal with this this mess, because he's already facing the mob's hostility for having declared him innocent. So Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. And what Herod does is he essentially toys with Jesus, but also finds Jesus not guilty. That's why he sends him back to Pilate. So the account with Herod, verse 8, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had desired long to see him, because he had heard many things about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he, Herod, questioned him, Jesus, at some length, but, Herod ma- but uh, Jesus made no answer. So Herod's questioning Jesus. He wants Jesus to do something miraculous, but Jesus will not do miraculous things. Why? Why doesn't Jesus just prove to Herod that he is the Christ? Well, Luke has told us a couple of times in his gospel who are the kinds of people who demand signs are the very kinds of people who you should not show signs to. Uh, Luke chapter 4, the devil demands signs of Jesus to to vindicate that Jesus is who he said he was. Uh, Similarly, uh, in Luke uh, chapter 13, uh, there's a group of people who come to Jesus and say, show us a sign. And he says, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. And as Jonah condemned this wicked generation, so will the son of man be. So Jesus refuses to give signs when explicitly asked to give signs because in the Old Testament, you don't test God. And so Herod wants Jesus to do something fun before his eyes. He wants to see it. He doesn't get it. And so eventually he tires. And uh, verse 11, And Herod with his soldiers treated him, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. And then they arrayed him in splendid clothing and sent him back to Pilate. So they basically say, you know, we're not taking this thing very seriously. Here he is mocked as a a supposed king, and we're going to just send him back to Pilate to have Pilate deal with him. Now, what's notable, the verse I skipped over, is the, the constant people in the background who are spurring this whole thing along is the chief priests and the scribes. Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. So they, they're not content just to have Jesus go to Herod. They want to make sure Herod renders a guilty verdict. So the whole time where Jesus is going around, just picture Israel's religious leaders just all following the trial of Jesus and the whole time accusing him, accusing him, accusing him in the background. That's the picture Luke is drawing. They go to Pilate, they accuse him. They go to Herod, they accuse him. And when they go back to Pilate, they once again now rally the crowd and accuse Jesus... And Luke gives us a little note, uh, by the way, in verse 12, that at at this point Herod and Pilate become friends with one another. Uh, The point of that is to say that Herod is in agreement with Pilate that Jesus is not guilty. Otherwise, Herod would have put Jesus to death, right? But because Herod and Pilate agree, they form this kind of political allegiance together. And so not only do you have uh, Pilate saying Jesus is innocent, you also have Herod saying that Jesus is, is innocent. But there's something that's interesting uh, in, in the background here. Um, earlier in Luke's gospel, uh, this, is, this is in Luke uh, chapter 13, uh, the people go to Jesus and say, don't go to Jerusalem. Herod is trying to kill you. You remember this scene? If you don't, you can look it up later. It's Luke chapter 13, verse 31. And they're essentially saying that's Jesus to deter him on his mission. Well, the fact that Jesus is in front of Herod, and Herod actually doesn't want to kill him, is a pretty good indication that was a rumor started by someone who wanted Jesus off mission. So if you're trying to put details together about was that a true rumor or a false rumor, the fact that Herod has Jesus in his, before him and he can do whatever he wants, he can render guilty or innocent, whatever, because Pilate has given it to him, and he doesn't do that, it's probably pretty good evidence that Herod wasn't out to kill Jesus. That was a rumor started by people who were trying to deter Jesus from his mission. So just uh, a little detail in the text that you might be curious about Um, So, uh, there's the Herod scene, and that once again affirms who is Jesus. He's both the Messiah and he's innocent. Herod mocks Jesus as the Messiah, but he does so because Jesus feels no need to prove to Herod that he's the Messiah. So, because Jesus has rendered countless evidences to his Messiahship, to everyone else, and Herod is certainly not taking these things uh, seriously, judging by the fact that he mocks and dresses Jesus up, which is not really part of Let's say a a just trial. And then what happens? Pilate calls together all the chief priests and the rulers of the people and says to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Verse 15 Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. So he's basically saying, He's innocent. But to appease you, I will punish him, and then I will release him. So we've had the second instance of Pilate saying he's innocent. And in the second time, Pilate also says, and Herod agrees with me that he's innocent. Well, then the crowd cries back, verse 18. They all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And now Luke wants you to not miss it. So in verse 19, he's going to tell you who Barabbas is a man who had been thrown in prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So the the scribes and the Pharisees, they're all together, and they want Jesus tried and killed for being an insurrectionist, right? Remember they brought him to Pilate and said, here's a man misleading our nation and claiming to be king of the Jews. He's going to be a trouble for you, Pilate, so you should kill him. And then in the next turn before Pilate, they say, release to us Barabbas, a man who's actually guilty of all the charges leveled against Jesus. So obviously, Luke is telling you they don't care about facts. They just care about getting Jesus killed. I've said that like 10 times tonight. (laughs) Please don't miss that. So they want Barabbas free. Pilate addressed them once more, seeing, desiring, seeing uh, he wants to release Jesus, desiring to release him. Verse 21. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. Now that's not a typo. Luke is, Luke is double emphasizing the strength which, which they say to crucify him. Uh, it's, it's crucify, crucify. It's, you know, we want him dead, dead. We want him all the way crucified. And a third time... This repetition of threes. A third time he said, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Now notice, they're not bringing evidence. They're not bringing witnesses. They're not bringing testimony. They're not even debating whether he's innocent. They're simply saying, crucify him. Pilate, we don't care what you think. We don't care what the evidence says. We don't care what Herod says. We just want him crucified, and you can let Barabbas go. And the sad note is found at the end of verse 23. It's that second sentence. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released to them the man, who, by the way, in case you forgot who Barabbas was, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one for whom they asked but he delivered to them Jesus over to their will. So Pilate demonstrates uh, a superior amount of weakness and cowardice in the fact that he finds Jesus innocent, 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 and still says, we will crucify him. Clearly the council is showing a strength, a kind of vindictiveness, because they don't care about the facts, they just want him to be put to death. And the irony is that Jesus is swapped out for a man who's actually guilty of the charges that they're having a hard time convicting Jesus of. So if these were people who were concerned over justice, Luke is telling you they are not. You should, never, you should not doubt for one moment that Jesus actually was some kind of a zealot who was going over and trying to insurrect, cause an insurrection in Rome. And the, and the Jewish high priests don't think that either. They, they just want him killed because he's a threat to them. So Barabbas is released. Jesus goes in Barabbas' stead to be crucified. Barabbas is guilty of all the crimes with which Jesus is actually charged. And instead, Barabbas is released. And Jesus is taken into the will of the people. Now, there's the third thing I wanted you to pick up. So Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, we've seen that. Jesus is innocent. Yes, Luke has emphasized that uh, to almost no end. And here is a picture that Luke is painting for us of Jesus as a substitute. If you want to know how to understand Jesus' crucifixion, you have to understand these facts. Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. That's a key part of understanding his crucifixion. Jesus was actually innocent. That's a key part to understanding his crucifixion. He was not guilty. He was not a sinner. He he did not go uh, and, and just kind of get cut short in his rebel phase of of inciting the people. He was innocent of these charges. And also, big picture idea, he goes to the cross in place of someone who's actually guilty of the crimes committed. Now that becomes extremely relevant for us because now I'm not just telling you historical things to understand about Jesus, that he's the Messiah and that he's innocent, but I'm also telling you a way to understand what Jesus does on the cross. And Luke is telling you to understand the cross in this way. Jesus goes instead of guilty sinners to the cross. Jesus goes instead of Barabbas to the cross. And as the beauty of the Acts message of the gospel will tell us, Jesus goes instead of you and I to the cross. Jesus dies a death that he is innocent of. And he does so in place of something you and I are actually guilty of. If you've ever thought to yourself... Uh, the punishment on the cross, God's wrath against sin, seems unjust, the first thing is we don't always see our sin appropriately in light of God. We often think about ourselves as innocent but imperfect creatures before God. The Bible tells us we are guilty and rebellious creatures before God. And that, as a starting place, is very important for understanding what Jesus does in our lives. Because if we are misunderstood, doing our best creatures, then Jesus cannot be a substitution or a savior for us. He can be a spiritual guide. He can be a good mentor. He can be a good model. But he can never be for us the substitute. But if we can grasp the idea that the Bible teaches that humans are actually rebels and condemned before God, then the work of Jesus on the cross begins to make more sense. The crucifixion actually has a place because now Jesus is dealing with sin in a swapping kind of way. He goes to the cross innocent, condemned to die, in place of one who should have gone to the cross guilty in that place. And if you're a Christian, this is the understanding of Jesus that you too have. Because to believe in Jesus Christ is not just mental assent to historical facts, uh, as Paul would tell us and as the New Testament would tell us, it's actually a personal encounter with the risen Lord who compels us to see not only our condemnation before a holy God, but also our innocence through belief in him. That he says, actually we are just as wicked and even more so than we th- are suspicious that we are, but not, but not just that, that he has made a way for us to actually be found innocent before God. And it's not by sleight of hand. It is not by being an unjust judge. He actually deals with the penalty of sin in his body on the tree. He goes guilty and condemned instead of sinners. And as a Christian, I'm sure that you have much comfort to share in his condemnation. In fact, many of the songs that we sing in Christian worship re- revolve around Adoring Christ for his work of not only uh, resurrecting, not only reigning, but also saving those who were otherwise irredeemable, unlovable, unworthy of salvation, as Barabbas is in every single case. And what Luke is emphasizing, again, the Barabbas story is not some random historical artifact where Luke wants to tell us what happened to a man named Barabbas. He's giving us a way of seeing the cross of Christ that Jesus goes as a substitute to that cross. So this is who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the one who, Christ, uh, the one who God sends into the world to redeem the world. He is the innocent lamb who goes uh, as a lamb led to slaughter, innocent on all charges, and yet willingly going to the cross. Why does he do these things? Because he's going to be a substitute and a savior for his people. That his blood would cover his people, that he would be their savior, and his people would respond in worship and say, and he is our God. And that is the confession of Christians today. Let's pray. Our Father, you are an awesome and powerful God, ruler of all the earth, and you have by your immense wisdom and power and foresight made a beautiful and stunning picture of salvation. Lord, would we see rightly your glorious work of redemption on the cross. That Christ, you are the one who stands in place of our sin. You are the one who goes in our place. Lord, that we would not just see ourselves as guilty, certainly that, but also as those who have been redeemed by your blood through faith in you. Lord, I pray that you would impress that truth upon our hearts, that no shame of guilt would remain for those who are in Christ, but only the freedom and uh, and mercy which is found in the blood of the Lamb. Lord, would you cause us to rightly see you and worship you in response to all these truths. We pray together in Christ's name. Amen.